Welcome to the Sales Lift with my mom and dad. Hey, Sales Lift Nation, it's your host, Tyler Lindley. Today, I have my wife, Juliana Lindley, on the podcast. Hey, Juliana, how's it going today? It's going good, Tyler. You're perky this morning. Yes, very perky. Very excited to have you on the show. Had my mom on a few weeks ago. Now interviewing you today, or you're interviewing me, I guess we'll find out. But yeah, what do you want to chat about today? You do a lot of talking to other people and figuring out why they're thought leaders and experts. So I figured it would be time to turn the table and make you answer some questions about yourself and your background and what it is that brought you to where you are today. Awesome. I'm excited. Let's get going. Cool. Awesome. So Tyler, I thought that it would be interesting. I would say that your path to where you are today is certainly organic and all your own. You should go all the way back. I think that you should talk about where it truly all started. If you want to talk about, mention your parents, I think that would be interesting. But why don't you take it back to Clemson and tell everybody about your journey and all the different things that you've done to land where you are today? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So my sales journey started back in back when I was a kid. I've always been outgoing and comfortable talking to strangers, so I knew I had a knack for it. Both my parents were in sales. My mom was in pharmaceutical sales. My dad sold for Kraft Foods for 40 years, so I grew up in a family of sales folks. So I was inclined to probably end up in sales, and I think I just had some of the natural instincts that probably allow you to be successful in sales. Studied marketing at Clemson because there was no sales degree. That's actually where I met you in a marketing class. That was fun and serendipitous. And so I, out of school, I started, even before I got to Clemson, I sold Cutco knives for a summer. Okay, good. I wanted to make sure you mentioned oh, that one. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So I sold Cutco knives for a summer. Companies called Vector Marketing. So mm-hmm. for those of you that don't know, Cutco is a kind of high-end cutlery brand that has direct-to-consumer, direct sales model. And their sales reps are usually a lot of young, hungry people looking to get into sales. So I did that for a summer, sold a bunch of knives to... In high school. In high school. Yeah, I was in high school. This was like a high school internship, I guess you could call it. Initially, sold it to my mom, sold it to just my mom, my dad, hey, you want to buy some knives? Because I got to sell some of these if I'm going to make any money. But then I sold to their friends and then their friends and their friends and their friends to their friends. So got really good at giving uh, a demo, which I've done a lot now in software sales, like giving a software demo. But this was actually an in-person at the kitchen table demo, demoing Cutco Cutlery. So would have this fancy bag, would pull out all these knives, show them the trick, talked about all these value props. It was a lot of me selling. I wasn't really trying to get to know them. I was trying their situation or their problems. I was just trying to throw knives at them, not at them, but trying to throw (laughs) my knife knowledge at them as much as possible. So it was very pushy, very pitchy, but I definitely learned that you've got to ask questions. You've got to be personable. And it was all about referrals, right? Yeah. Networking. So it was cool. I learned a lot of skills that I think I still use to this day and learned that it's not all about the demo and the pitch. You've got to get to know them a little bit better. So I think initially I I would just focus on the pitch and the demo, but over time I would focus more on them and their situation and what they already had in the kitchen. How did they cook? Those kind of things. It was a great experience and definitely one that I think everybody should try to do. It's, I guess it wasn't door-to-door sales, but it technically was. And it was referral-based. It was networking. I was young. So I think it was a great experience for me early on in my sales career. So I knew that doing that, because the other jobs I work were just retail jobs, Chick-fil-A uh-huh. and a retail store at a guitar shop. So that wasn't as influential as that summer selling the Cutco Cut. But I ended up at Clemson, marketing degree, 
and then out of school, had a lot of really cool sales opportunities that I actually did not take because I decided, oh, I just want the job that's the coolest, sexiest job with the biggest paycheck. So I ended up doing IT consulting, which I had no idea what that meant, IT consulting, but I lived in Buckhead and I had a big paycheck and I thought I was cool and quickly realized that it was not fun. I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't selling, right? I was doing all this project work and they had me working with offshore teams and it was a lot mm-hmm. of development. And I just realized this is not for me. I, I want to go sell something. So I went down to Charleston, South Carolina and sold for a Clemson grad, Adam Witte, for a little bit. He owns a business called Advantage Media Group. So I had a, a good experience working for him but realized I wanted to do something on my own. I didn't want to sell for someone else. I wanted to sell on my own. So I started a food truck with you, you actually. Yeah. So I convinced you to leave your very secure, well-paying day job and hop on a food truck with me so we could go sell (laughs) food to the masses here in Atlanta. And Uh uh, we quickly realized that that was a tough, thing to do, like just being a food truck and going out and selling. It was tough. There's a lot of variables you couldn't control. So we pivoted to opening up a small carryout restaurant here in Atlanta, suburb of Atlanta, and then focusing a lot on catering and events. So initially just started focusing on doing weddings and like parties, Mm -hmm. those kind of things, but Mm -hmm. realized that kind of our bread and butter was definitely high-end weddings and B2B corporate catering. So we ended yep. up working with a lot of really cool corporate clients here in Atlanta. And Are you going to name drop any of them or do you remember? <laughs> I think I remember. Home Depot is one that we work with a lot. We worked with Coke, IHG, IOA. So a lot of like the medium Spanks. to Spanks, Yeah. A lot of the medium to large size <laughs> companies here in Atlanta that yeah. we were passionate about that we could have been working for, right. we just went and catered for. And you were definitely a huge driver of that. I try to sell something or come in and make it flashy. And then, but I I didn't like a lot of the grunt work. So you, you were definitely the one that kept us on track and kept me going until eventually I burned out and said, I've got to get out of here. And that's when I transitioned to software sales. So that's true. But that was only after you became an expert in cooking barbecue. That's something that you're very good at, but you don't tell people that you know how to do. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? Is it PTSD or? (laughs) Probably a little bit. Yeah. So I think it's just, it's definitely a skill I have. So we pivoted to our menu being very barbecue meat driven. And so I traveled to Texas and learned how to cook meat over open wood fire. It was not the shortcut way. It was definitely the Mm -hmm. old school way. And so we'd go out and light these fires every morning and we'd cook brisket and pork and pork belly and ribs and all kinds of good stuff. And we got pretty good at it. Yeah, the meat was really good. The barbecue was great. It was authentic. It was natural. We had these big smokers that were all human-driven, wood-fired smokers. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it was definitely something I was passionate about. And yeah, I don't know why I don't talk about it more, but it's just something that I've put away. I've got my big green egg in the backyard that I fire up occasionally. But it's definitely different when you're cooking the backyard than when you're cooking for the masses. So it's true. So can you make sure in the show notes, can you put that picture of you and Aaron Franklin where you are making with like, yeah, no, I was starstruck face. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put that yeah. in the show notes. I'll have to uncover okay. that. Aaron Franklin is the owner of Franklin barbecue in Austin, Texas. I got to meet him in Texas. Yeah. I can definitely put that in the show notes. Okay, good. So you mentioned kind of the transition to software sales. I think it's important to note too, that a lot of things had changed in our lives personally at the time when you decided to make that change. So I don't think it's any, it's not unknown to a lot of your listeners that the food industry, uh, food service is super difficult, low margins, 
really hard hours. So I think that it's important for you to call out that the shift to starting a career in software sales was really driven by the fact that our family had changed and grown. So everybody probably knows we have two small kids. Curtis is eight, Gemma is five. And it was right around the time when Gemma was born. So 2016, when Tyler transitioned to sales. So talk about, let's call it like the reintegration, right? I mean, working for yourself, working for a food service business. Why don't you talk about the initial sale of yourself and how you got back into the corporate world? I think that that's more difficult than people realize. So why don't you talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure. It was really, really messy, right? It was really messy because no one knew how to treat some 20-something-year-old who had owned their own business and food service and hospitality for the majority of his career. It was a foreign thing. So I had a really difficult conversations of, well, I know how to sell. I know how to, I can help you, but- Because you were saying that you did. Because the results that, I remember you would point to some of the names that we've already dropped, Mm -hmm. Home Depot, Turner, Spanx, as far as catering sales. But like you're mentioning- yeah, I sold catering. It's like, what is yeah, that? Yeah, nobody knew what that meant. And nobody cared. Nobody cared. Right. Like if, they, if I wasn't selling a software product, even if it could have been some no name startup, but I could have just said I was selling software. If we had started a software company instead of a food right. truck and catering business, then I think I could have easily jumped into the software. So it definitely was a difficult transition because I was floating my resume out there and just yep. getting a lot of not even going to bring no callbacks, no callback, not even a yeah. interview, which I thought if I could get in for an interview, I'd be okay. But I couldn't get into the door. You couldn't even. get in the door. So I was thinking like, cool, I've done this thing that I thought was cool. And I thought it'd be easy to transition to anything else and do sales, but it was proving to be a very difficult transition. So let's use terms that you use every day. How did you eventually overcome that ultimate objection of people not understanding your background. What was the breakthrough moment? So the breakthrough moment was when I started to focus on what did I know? And what I knew was how to run a small business and all of the great and horrible things that come with running your own small business. So mm-hmm. I tried to find an organization that could relate to that, that, that message okay. of small business. And that's when I found Infusionsoft, which is a software company based out in Arizona. It's now called Uh Keep, K-E-A-P. So you might know it as Infusionsoft, which is still a product of theirs, or Keep. But when I was there, it was Infusionsoft. So that's what I'm going to refer to it as. But uh, Infusionsoft sold to small businesses and specifically small business owners. So it's a CRM and marketing automation platform for small businesses. And I was able to get into the door there because they thought that my background, I'd be able to relate really well to our target audience. Yep. So... That was a really good kind of initial opportunity for you. And a common objection I think that you heard from these small business owners that you were trying to sell to was, thanks so much, but I'm using HubSpot. I'm using MailChimp or whatever it might be. So you made a transition to the billion dollar brand HubSpot pretty quickly, I would say. You you found your way in there. So why don't you talk about that kind of how you made that transition. And then I think that you should also make sure that you tell the story about your months of training that occurred up in Boston. 
Okay. Yeah, for sure. So I, yeah, I definitely enjoyed my time. I started as an AE there and got promoted to a, a sales manager where I was leading a team of A's and SDRs and really enjoyed that time. I was working in a regional office here in Atlanta though. And, and I could just sense that maybe Infusionsoft wasn't the right, the best long-term fit for me. So I started mm-hmm. to look at companies that were in a similar arena that where I could, where I could really grow my skill set and, and land long-term. And that's where I found HubSpot. Well, actually HubSpot found me. Someone reached out to me and said, do you want to move to Boston? And I said, hell no, because <laughs> I don't like cold weather. I'm from the South. I grew up in South Carolina. We live in Georgia. Right, I like college football too I like much. college football. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do y'all even know what that means? So, uh, <laughs> so, so I, I said, no, I don't want to move to Boston, but, but I had been like hearing of people working remote and I said, but I'd be open to working remote if y'all do that. And Mm -hmm. they said, oh yeah, we definitely do that. Let's chat. And I was surprised because I didn't really think I had heard of companies letting their sales folks work remotely, but I didn't think it actually happened. So, so HubSpot was actually really starting to put a lot of emphasis into their remote program and had dozens and dozens of employees working fully remote on their sales org. And that's when I got into, so it ended up you know, working out and I started as a channel sales, uh, it's like channel account manager at HubSpot, working with the HubSpot agency partners. Yep. So what happened whenever you got to Boston? So to preface this, HubSpot being the great company that it is, it brings all of, well, pre-COVID brought all of their new hires to Boston to mm-hmm. stay for a month mm-hmm. for some really intense training on the platform making sure that you knew the software yep. up, down, left. So you went in March, which is your birthday month. And March here in the South is when we start pulling out shorts and flip-flops. So mm-hmm. you go up to Boston and then talk about the weather. And then I want to point out something funny. And it's very true to who you still are today about your competitiveness and test-taking skills. So talk about the weather the first day you got there. This is funny. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the weather was it, I got there on a Sunday and I was supposed to start work on Monday and there was a blizzard on Sunday (laughs) evening that was unexpected. It was not, I don't think they were calling for it. Maybe a little bit of snow, which is normal there, but it was a a large amount of snow in March. And the, uh, they actually ended up shutting down the city the next day, (laughs) which I didn't think happened, but, uh, but apparently it does happen. So I, I basically, my first day of work was canceled because of snow, but I was in Boston. So it was ironic. So I actually ended up, you know, meeting up with all these other people who are from all around the world. And we walked around and checked out Boston and Cambridge and Harvard and a lot of things. And there was snow everywhere. I had, I did not have the right jacket. You had to ship me a new jacket because because I was not prepared for the cold and I had the wrong shoes, wrong everything. So it was a fish out of water experience. But uh, but yeah, that started my month long in person onboarding experience at HubSpot, where I, like you said, I learned a lot about the HubSpot way, the HubSpot product, the culture. Uh-huh. I was going into the office every day, and it was it was a great experience to learn and really get integrated into a company. That's not something I was able to do at Infusionsoft. I, you know, just right. went out to Arizona, I think, for a few days and got a feel for it, and then went back to Atlanta. So, but at HubSpot, it was there. You were really ingrained in that culture for a month, so you really got to know right. a lot about the company and the organization and and the leaders and everything. Trade that- stock tips with Darmesh. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't think he needs my help there, but but yeah, it, <laughs> it was a 
it was a great experience and, and really got to learn a lot about HubSpot there. Totally. So they did things with you guys, teach you the platform, test you on your knowledge of it. So there was a written yep. test. So I'll just say it for your audience that finished it quickly and got 100% on it. And so your boss was like, wow, Ooh, yeah. doesn't happen a lot. So that happened. <laughs> and then they helped to, to make sure that you understood and could perfect the demo Mm-hmm. Because of remote selling, you pre-pandemic, and I think that's the interesting and important thing to call out is that the success in your selling career has been completely remote. So while that's a very new transition mm-hmm. um, for most of the world, your President's Club was won by and only through remote selling. Yep. So I think that to me something that you do very well is that networking that started for you at a very young age with the Cutco knife sales. Tapping network that was your mom's network a little bit, but you kind of penetrated, made that your own, kind of got to know those people, made the transition to Clemson, met a lot of people. You had a different experience than I did. I came from Maryland. So my parents lived 12 hours away and I knew three people from my hometown. You came with a squad, if you will, Mm -hmm. and broke out later in your career. But I've seen you really shine and thrive in opportunities where you make your own way. So I think that's very interesting about you. And like I said, your path to where you are now has been very organic. And again, pointing out that all of your selling success has been done remotely. Mm -hmm. So talking about that, now you work for Vendition, a company that trains SDRs for careers in software sales. Mm -hmm. So what are some of what are to you, what are the best practices and tips and tricks for having a successful remote sales career? What would you say some of those are? Yeah. So Remote selling is to me more the default now. I think that we're most of us are going to be selling remote, not just now, but I think for the rest of our careers, just because I don't think I think people are more accustomed to this type of this type of an environment and engagement. And, And it's also becoming, I think, the preference for a lot of folks, especially in our generation, to not have to do all that travel that used to be required. So I think for certain things, there still will be certain industries or very expensive products, there still will be a lot of in-person selling. But uh, but I think for a large majority of folks, a lot of sales will be done remotely. So remote selling is, to me, really interesting because you've got to have the ability to really control your yourself, right? Control your calendar, control your controllables, as I like to say to a lot of folks, because there's no one there looking over your shoulder, right? Your boss Uh is a thousand miles away here, probably in a different time zone. And you've got a big quota to hit every month, whether you're an SCR, you're an AE, whatever you're doing, like you've still got numbers and metrics that you need to hit, but it is requires a ton of self-discipline. So mm-hmm. so I think the question to ask a lot of new folks getting into sales, like we do at Vendition, new SDRs getting into sales is, are you comfortable working independently? Because right. a lot of the work you do is independent. It's in your bedroom. It's in your at your kitchen table. It's in that office if you're lucky enough to have one. But it is not with the direct 
supervision of someone, which kind of goes contrary to the world that they grew up in, where they had a teacher Mm -hmm. or an assistant teacher looking over their shoulder and grading and giving feedback in real time. You don't get that as much. So you have to have the ability to work independently and you have to have the ability to go out and ask for feedback. Hey, please listen to this call of mine. Hey, please review this email that I just wrote. Please review this call script I'm about to use. Please review my calendar and how I'm blocking my time because I don't know if this is the right thing to be doing. So you've got to have the ability to ask for feedback from everyone, from your peers, from your manager, from an outsourced coach if you're using a coach. But that I think is becoming uh, a really important skill is to work independently and have the ability to ask for feedback. And let's be honest, a lot of people don't want feedback. They don't want they don't want constructive criticism. Right. If, exactly. if they get the feedback, wow, you're doing awesome. It's like, cool. But yeah, it's difficult when you, you're saying you have the freedom and the independence to pave your own way on making your schedule and managing your time. It's great if somebody's like, perfect, but it's, hey, doesn't feel so good if there's things that probably need to be improved. There's <laughs> always things that need to be improved, especially for those folks new to sales. And that's why you've got to be coachable. And that's a skill. You know, I was talking about this to some of the recruiters that work at that work at HubSpot. We call them career advisors at uh, not at HubSpot, but at Vendition. Yeah. And they basically help to source some of the SDRs that we work with. And I told him like, you need to look for that coachability factor as Uh well as you need to look for grit, right? You need to look for that stick with itness because this is likely going to be the first time that a lot of these folks have failed in their life. And when I talk about failing, I I mean, fail a lot where you are failing way more than you're winning. And that was something that I had a tough time. I struggled with, like when I went to HubSpot, this kind of I was on the big stage in the big arena. The first thing I did right out of that, uh, right out of crushing onboarding and thinking I was the best was I failed. I failed yep. for two straight months and uh, my first months with a quota. And I thought, I can't, I yep. can't do this. I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I'm just, I'm meant for little leagues. Like I can't cut it in the big leagues. And, uh, and yeah, luckily, that yeah, that was tough. But luckily, <laughs> even though I like, even though I wasn't accustomed to that, I, I had, I had like enough inside of me. I figured out how to, how to find that to stick with it and to just stay the course. And a lot of that was me leaning on my peers, me leaning on my manager, yep. me leaning on the process, like trusting the process. Because if you end up mm-hmm. with the right company, likely they've got the right process. They've helped other people do it before. You've just right. got to trust that. So even though when mm-hmm. you feel like, you're failing when you feel like I can't do this. I can't cut it. It's that imposter syndrome. I talk a lot mm-hmm. about this with Ali Rizakos, who who I work with and who I had on the podcast a little while back. It's that like imposter syndrome. We all have it. We all have that feeling, that sensation of I can't do this. I'm a fraud. And mm-hmm. you either overcome that and push through it and figure out ways to control that feeling or it's crippling and you let it defeat you and you get out of whatever you're doing. You just say, I can't mm-hmm. do it. And you let it defeat you. So, so you've got to figure out like, which one are you? And I think that's a good thing to figure out before you even get into sales, because once you're in the arena, like you need to have some of that, some of that grit and determination have already built up. So you can withstand those punches that you are going to get on day one. Yep. Totally. So you just mentioned the coachability factor. Who do you think, I I think I might know what you're going to say, but give me some examples of people that you don't have to personally know, but Mm -hmm. that you think are good coaches and why 
you can talk sports, you could talk personal or, oh you know, this you is could easy. talk. This is so easy. Okay. <laughs> this is so easy. I'm not saying this is going to sound like a Homer answer. I'm not <laughs> saying this because I went to Clemson and everything, but literally, yeah. okay. So I was at Dabo Sweeney's first football practice that was open to the public, that was open to the students. And Tommy yes. Bowden, the previous coach, never did anything like that. So Dabo was the wide receivers coach, got promoted to head coach, and he interim head coach because yep. it was like, we're not so sure about this. Let's see what right. he can do with the rest this of the This is a gamble. This is a gamble. This is a gamble. This is a guy coming up from his own food truck trying to be, the big, <laughs> be on the big shit. That's right. So he opened up practice like that first week he was there as the interim head coach, opened yes. it up to the students to attend. And of course, I was a football junkie and I love Clemson still football. Are. Yeah, still am. So, <laughs> so I, of course, attended and, uh, and it was towards the end of practice. And they were, Dabo was addressing us, the students, not his, mind you, he has a whole team of hundred plus players that he's supposed to be coaching, but he's addressing us, the students that showed up and it was the end of practice and everyone has some fun. So he's like, okay, so who wants to go out and field a punt from our regular punt team? And of course I stand up immediately. I'm the only one that stands up. And then, so I get out there and, and it's like the legitimate punt team. Like there's the actual punter, the punt return team is on and I'm act, I'm standing next to the actual return guy and mm. he's, Hey man, you want to borrow my gloves? And I was like, nah, man, I got this. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I, I don't take his gloves and then here comes, it's like, here's snap, the ball's snapped. And then here comes this punt. And like, you think of like punts, oh, this big soaring thing up in the air. No, this was an end over end punt. It was not the greatest punt in the world. So, but it was this bullet coming at me and I don't have the gloves. So literally I'm, I'm about to S myself. And of course, like the ball hits me literally right in the chest and bounces through and hits the ground. And the paper, the local newspaper was taking pictures of that moment. And literally I ended up in the paper of me dropping the ball. So, but- so coach you up after that? Like, what <laughs> yeah, do you no, think I think I just, good? I think I just failed my walk on tryout. So there was no oh, coaching, but anyways, I, I tell the story to say that was the culture Dabo was building. And the culture was inclusivity. The culture was, I'm going to get everyone behind this mission. And, and he was just laser focused. Like he's laser focused in yeah. how he does his coaching. He's disciplined, he's planned. And he cared more about just developing good football players. Like he loved it when guys ended up in the NFL, but he cares a lot about developing men, developing good young men who can be productive mm -hmm. members of society. And you see it because Clemson talks about the Clemson family because a lot of right. players return and want to hang out around campus or they end up being coaches or whatever. But that's the culture that he's building. So I think that if we're talking about leadership and, and coaches that I that I really enjoy, like Dabo would definitely stand out. At the same token, like I also love Nick Saban. I can't believe I just said that out loud. But <laughs> I like Nick Saban in that he's doing it a very he's different ruthless. way. He's ruthless and it's all about the process and it's all about selling the dream of like, I put players in the league, it, but he right. is really effective at it, really effective at selling that. Like he just came out to that. Oh, my, the guy who hasn't even started at quarterbacks almost made seven figures on the, uh, on his name, image and likeness that just started yesterday, but he's selling the brand. He's selling the vision and that's what he's yeah. selling. He's selling opportunity. Dabo's selling the same thing, but he's doing it in a different way. He's like selling, like I can coach up your, your young uh, football player, not just as a football player, but as a human being, as a man as well. So I think they're going about it in, in different ways, but there's, uh, I think they're both effective. So, so what do you want 
your coaching legacy to be, right? I think that in your your day job, what you do for Vendition all the time, you are literally coaching SDRs and mm-hmm. young people who are either fresh out of school or looking to transition into the software sales world. So what would you say, what are you setting out to have your coaching legacy be? Um, for your SDRs, I think for our kids, for people that are around you, what kind of impact are you looking to make on them. Yeah, for sure. So I think the impact I'm looking to make is that I'm there to support you and your development, even if that means you've chosen the wrong thing. Because I think a lot of us, like I just told the story a little while ago about how out of school, I chose the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Nobody has it figured out when you're in your, I tell these young SDRs this a lot. No one has their life figured out in their 20s or even their 30s. Right. Like I barely have life figured out and I'm in my 30s. I think it's like something that you figure out. We end up talking to our parents and I think they forget that they were once in their 20s and they didn't have it all figured out because they're in their 50s or 60s or 70s. And like Mm -hmm. they're on the other side of life where they've matured and they've learned and they've had a lot of experiences to get to that point. But rewind back into your 20s what did you really have figured out? You didn't know who you were. You didn't know what you cared about. I think it's important, especially when you're working with young reps, it's okay to not have it figured out. It's okay for this to be the wrong decision. However, Mm -hmm. like if this is the right decision, then you got to bust your ass and I'm going to be the one that's going to be there to hold you accountable. I'm going to cheer for you and I'm going to bust your ass like in the same conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to reward you and compliment you and be your biggest cheerleader but I'm going to hold you accountable. And I think that you've got to be able to do both. They have to be able to both love you and fear you from the sense that like you are going to expect results. Like everything that a lot, everything in life really is, especially in the professional world is performance based. Like we have to perform in that we've got to hit quota or we've got to, we've got to meet this set of deliverables. We've got to meet this deadline, regardless of whether you're in sales or not, you have to have the ability to perform with whatever you do. And Mm -hmm. I want them to know that like, you can have a leader or a coach or a mentor be your biggest cheerleader, but also be your biggest accountability partner. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that means like a big swift kick in the ass that they don't want to hear. It's like when you hold me accountable to stuff, I don't want to hear that. You're my wife. I just want you to (laughs) cheer me on and tell me I'm right right about everything. But then when you hold me accountable, I'm like, oh, well, you're right. Maybe sometimes. So, so, but that's hard to hear, especially from people that we like and that we surround ourselves with. It's hard to hear that kind of feedback. You talked about constructive criticism earlier, but that's probably exactly what we need to hear. And if you're not surrounding yourself with people who have the ability to both cheer you on and hold you accountable, then you're probably surrounding yourself with the wrong people. Cause I think, I think it's a nice mixture of both. I think if you're too far to one side, if you're only the cheerleader, then that ends up failing. But if you're only the hardcore accountability, like results or you suck a thing, I think that doesn't work. To me, the answer is in the middle. Like I want our children to both love me and fear me. Um, And I want the same thing for my relationship with my SDRs or for anybody that I'm coaching for that matter. Well, it's an old school way. I, I think that that's another thing that's interesting. You are... A young person. We are both technically millennials by our age. Yes. But I think that some of our peers and then definitely our younger peers, people that are still in their 20s, really do struggle with that or any of those kind of gut check moments. We're used to 
we grew up with this with us from very young age and that instant gratification and getting 8,000 likes on an Instagram post doesn't equate to being successful in the business world, whether you're aspiring to be a chef or trying to make 50 calls by 12 noon. But like you're saying, I think it's that split of kind of the lift you up when you're doing well and then shake you a little bit, bring you back to the ground if you're getting a little pigheaded and you're not going to like it, but it's definitely something that you have to do. Cool. So I asked you about your legacy. Um, I have always told you that I think that you should end your podcast with one question and ask everybody. So I'm going to ask you a question that you have to answer that you have no idea that I'm going to ask you. Okay. I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm always ready. Let's do this. Okay. If you had only one meal that you had to eat every day for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh man. It's only one meal. You That's the only thing you can eat. Oh, it's the only thing I can eat forever. Yes. So you have to eat it every day. What so would this, it be? This is a lot different question because this is not necessarily your favorite meal. It's the meal that is like one of your favorites, but also one that you could withstand on a daily basis. So right, like your waistline. Could- yeah. I guess we could factor that in or we could not, but uh, <laughs> this is hard, but I feel I would say if we're just going to go last meal, like <laughs> you just made them the other day, but I really like Mexican food and I like the way, I like the way you make your chicken enchiladas. And I feel like yeah. you could repurpose that and maybe, I don't know if we could add eggs, we could make it like breakfasty, oh <laughs> and then we could make it into a sandwich maybe, or we can make it into a salad. So I feel like okay. it's versatile, but it's also okay. excellent. So I would say that would be the one thing I'd make no, with the asterisk that I want to repurpose that and turn it into a lot of other things too. So, okay. Yeah, I like it. Versatility. (laughs) Versatility. You're you're all about it. Versatility. So should I end this podcast or should you? I know you've been interviewing me, but who do you want to round us out or? You can end it. This is still your show, right? (laughs) Thanks so much for joining everybody. Thank you to my wife, Juliana. I love you. I appreciate everything that you do for me. Thank you for joining as a a guest host today. And and I look forward to doing it again in the future. So awesome. All right. Thank you. All right. See ya. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. You can find all the links discussed and the show notes at thesaleslift.com. That's the, T-H-E, sales, S-A-L-E-S, lift, L-I-F-T, dot com. Have questions for me? Email me at tyler at thesaleslift.com. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And we hope today's show brings you the sales lift your business needs. Remember, ideas, plus action equals results. You've got new ideas, now it's time to take action and the results will follow. See you next time.